How are things? Things are good. Um, I have, uh, ask me that again. <laughs> <laughs> okay, are you ready this time? <laughs> yes. Welcome to the Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character in a great story. I'm Todd Mack. And I'm Joe Dorowski. And this week we're talking about John Lewis from the graphic novel March, Book One. How are things? Things are great. Can I tell you a quick story about my four-year-old? Please do. Uh, so the other night, we were getting him ready for bed, and just out of the blue, he like looked pensive all of a sudden and kind of deep in thought. And he said, why are owls called not turtles? And I had no idea what he meant. I was like, what What are you talking about, not turtles? And he said, you know, things that don't come, or things that come out at night are not turtles. But why are they called not turtles? That is amazing. <laughs> oh, kids. They never cease to amaze me and the things that come out of my kids' mouths. But that is one of my favorites. Someday we need to get your four-year-old with my four-year-old and see what happens. My four-year-old is totally into this stage where he's just telling stories Uh um, that are completely made up. And so he'll say – we'll be driving in the car and he'll say, hey, dad, do you remember that one time when my mother and my father did this thing and um, (laughs) he talks about his mother and his father as if they were other people? And I'll say, (laughs) but I'm your father. And he'll say, no, you're not. You're my dad. But my father is, and he has like this, this, uh, this imaginary fiction, friend, imaginary mother and father that do, he has crazy adventures with them. They do yeah. all kinds of amazing things. I'm like, wow, uh, it kind of makes me feel bad. Like I'm a bad dad because I'm not living up to his father, <laughs> but it's amazing. And then my, and then my other kids are like, Ian, that's not true. <laughs> Just let it go. It's okay. <laughs> uh, so awesome stuff. All right. Uh, as we said, uh, we are going to be talking a bit about uh, March, book one. Okay, so before we get into trivia, just a quick synopsis of this. So March is uh, it's a story about the civil rights movement as told by John Lewis, who was a part of the civil rights movement and is now a member of Congress. Uh, and he wrote it with the help of uh, his assistant, Andrew Aiden. And then Nate Powell is the artist that drew this graphic novel, um, and it's uh, it's really good. So it's basically just the story of him. This book one is him uh, in the very early stages of civil rights movement and uh, meeting Martin Luther King. Yeah, thank you. Uh, some trivia about this. Uh, as you noted, John Lewis was a civil rights leader, and he has served in Congress since 1987. He was a major organizer of the civil rights movement and has many, many, many awards, uh, including the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Uh, Andrew Aiden, uh, he is John Lewis's communications director, and he actually helped to suggest the idea that uh, John Lewis should turn his experience uh, during the civil rights era into uh, a graphic novel. And that actually came about because John Lewis had kind of offhandedly mentioned a uh, a comic book that had influenced him, I think, uh, and kind of inspired him to get involved in the graph- in the civil rights movement. Uh, if I'm remembering right, I think that was in the, the information at the back. Uh, Nate Powell, he won an Eisner Award for his graphic novel, Swallow Me Whole. He's uh, an independent uh, comic book artist, um, but he's he's quite known. He's got a uh, unique style. Like, this, this uh, graphic novel is entirely in black and white. I actually met... 
Uh, Nate Powell, um, shortly after he did Swallow Me Whole, he was a keynote speaker at a Michigan State University Comics Forum that was held annually uh, when they would bring in comic book creators to talk about the art and craft of comics and graphic novels. Uh, Michigan State has a comic art collection with over 100,000 comic books in it, so they, they try and promote the study of comic books. Uh, March Book 1 was published in 2013, March Book 2 was published in 2015, and March Book 3 was published in 2016. Book 2 won an Eisner Award, and Book 3 won lots of awards, including a National Book Award. And it was doing, it was selling just fine, and then President Trump on Twitter said that John Lewis is all talk and no action, and the series became a bestseller overnight. (laughs) (laughs) Because people said, no wait, I think he has done some stuff. Oh look, there's a book about how much he has done. <laughs> unintended consequences of the president's Twitter feed. Uh, just, just a footnote, I guess, in the unintended consequences of President Trump's Twitter feed. It's probably, you know what? I wouldn't put it past him. I, I don't know. <laughs> it's maybe it was all planned. Like, <laughs> I don't know. I just feel like uh, it's it's too bizarre to not be planned. <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's... That, that, that of all the congressmen, he would say that John Lewis was all talk and no action. Yes, I, maybe they're maybe they're secretly like best friends or something. I don't know. I just none of, the world right, makes no sense to me really, right now. Then that was planned. They're secretly best friends. The world makes no sense to me right now. I can't make sense of any of this. So, um, but but uh, man. I wish President Trump would say something bad about me so that I could become a bestseller overnight. <laughs> <laughs> Downloads of the protagonist podcast soar. Yes. <laughs> okay. Um, before we get into the long synopsis, we want to remind you to take advantage of great deals from Amazon by going to protagonistpodcast.com slash deals or making any purchases through protagonistpodcast.com slash Amazon. And it looks just like regular Amazon, but we get a little kickback from any purchase that you make there. Uh, whether it's related to the show or not, and uh, we'd appreciate that. So without further ado, let's jump into the long synopsis of March. Yeah, and just uh, real quick, like I said earlier, this is a graphic novel, but the art, if you're imagining like superhero art, that is not (laughs) what is present in this. We'll have some examples on our uh, website or links to where you can see it. If you just went and Googled uh, March Book One, you'll see some examples of the art uh, from inside of it. It's, as I said, it's entirely black and white. Um, it's it's um, stylized um, in a unique way. Um, lots of uses uh, of shadow. Um, lots of uh, canted angles uh, for the perspective. Uh, and even, um, like, some pages will have white backgrounds. Other pages will have black backgrounds, depending on what's happening in them. So there's even though it's a, a black and white color palette, he does, Nate Powell, some really uh, skillful things uh, with that. But as far as the narrative goes, here is the synopsis. Uh, The book opens with the 1965 March to Montgomery, Alabama by civil rights protesters, a march that was incited by the shooting death of Jimmy Lee Jackson. As the protesters are crossing the Edmund Pettus Bridge and see state troopers on the other side, a protester asks John Lewis if he knows how to swim. John Lewis says no, and then we see images of the troopers gassing and beating the protesters in an event that became known as Bloody Sunday of the American Civil Rights Movement. We have to specify which Bloody Sunday, because around the world, there have been many Bloody Sundays when it comes to protests. 
Uh, we cut uh, uh, the timeline up to 2009 as Congressman John Lewis heads into his Washington, D.C. office. When he gets there, a woman is there with her son saying that she just wanted them to see his office. He invites the boys in and starts showing them some of the pictures on his wall, uh, including a picture when he was the sixth speaker on the day that Martin Luther uh, King Jr. gave the famous I Have a Dream speech. One of the boys asks why he has so many chickens in his office. They're little knickknacks uh, and the like, not actual live chickens in the office. <laughs> that would be amazing. <laughs> yes. Uh, and John Lewis talks about uh, the fact that when he was a child in Alabama, his family had a farm, and John took special care of the chickens. He would talk to them and name them, even though that is not the best practice with farm animals. <laughs> that may end up on your dinner table. <laughs> Uh, one of the boys in his office asks why he didn't become a chicken farmer if he loved chicken so much. Lewis says that he had an uncle who gave him a Bible. Uh, and we start jumping in the timeline. So when, when it's like Lewis is talking about his time on the farm growing up, it's, it's complete flashback in the graphic novel. This isn't just his text, you know, as he's talking to kids in his office. But he explains that he had an uncle who gave, gave him a Bible, which, which made him want to be a preacher. He would prepare sermons and give them to the chickens in the chicken coop. He would even baptize the chicks, though one time he held a baby chick too long underwater. <laughs> and he felt so guilty when the chick came out of the water and was dead. And he laid it down in the sun, hoping it would dry off and maybe somehow revive. And miraculously, it did. <laughs> but he still felt very guilty about what he had almost done. Um, Lewis had an uncle who took special interest in him, and that uncle drove him to the north of the United States one summer. Uh, they were very nervous on this drive until they reached Ohio. Uh, Lewis couldn't believe what he saw in the north, but he was still homesick for his family life in Alabama. Uh, in Alabama, Lewis starts attending school, and he loves it. He loves it so much that when all the kids in his family are kept home to work on the farm at harvest time, Lewis hides from his parents and then chases the bus down to go to school. Uh, in 1954, he hears about the Brown v. Board of Education ruling, which will desegregate schools, and he's very excited about this, but he finds out that in reality, nothing much changes for him. In 1955, on the radio, he hears Martin Luther King Jr. for the first time, and he's enthralled with his rhetoric. Later that year, Emmett Till is lynched, and the men who murdered him are acquitted by an all-white jury. And a little later that year, Rosa Parks refuses to give up her seat on the bus. So a lot of issues are coming to a head. And inspired by Dr. King, John Lewis gives his first sermon uh, at church, and he even has this picture taken for a paper for an article uh, about the boy preacher uh, in his town. John Lewis applies to a Baptist uh, school, and he's accepted, and he washes d dishes to earn his way there. He wants to go to Troy State uh, University, but that is not an integrated university. He applies several times, but he never hears anything back. Not knowing what to do, Lewis writes to Martin Luther King Jr., and he's invited to meet with him and with Martin Luther King Jr.'s lawyer. Lewis is terrified to meet Dr. King, but King is very nice to him. Dr. King says that to get into Troy, he will have to sue the state of Alabama and the Board of Education. But because Lewis is still a minor, he'll have to have his parents sign onto the lawsuit. Dr. King will help raise money for the lawsuit, but they need Lewis to understand that he or his family may get hurt in this process. Lewis says his parents wanted to be supportive, but they were worried for themselves, for their friends, for their neighbors. And because of that, they decide not to sign onto the suit, not allow the lawsuit to go forward. In 1958, at a Baptist church in Nashville, Tennessee, John Lewis hears a speaker talking about nonviolent protests. Lewis recruits others to come to classes about nonviolent protests, and they take turns harassing each other to see how far they can be pushed without breaking and losing their temper and snapping. Um, for their plans to work, they have to be completely nonviolent, and they need to weed out anyone who will react with a temper. And they stage sit-ins uh, at white, uh, white's-only lunch counters 
And when they are denied service, they will eventually leave those without trying to cause a scene. Uh, I mean, a violent scene. <laughs> They're trying to cause a scene, just not <laughs> a violent one. Uh, these sit-in protests spread throughout the South. Uh, and the t- jumping ahead back to the 2009 part of the story, John Lewis has to leave, uh, and everyone is concerned about his attire because it's very cold out. And he finally accepts someone's trying to give him a scarf, and he takes that before he heads out of his office. It reminds him of when snow was falling and they had a sit-in at a lunch counter. The store closed the lunch counter until everyone left, but they sat there for hours until it was evening. Then they did it again, and store owners asked for a moratorium on the sit-ins until they presented a proposal. Uh, and they, the, the protesters agree, okay, we're not going to do the sit-ins because we seem to be making progress. But then, oddly enough, the proposal from the, the store owners <laughs> never comes. <laughs> Uh, and the protesters are warned that if they sit in again, police will allow the more violent elements of society to have time with the protesters before the police intervene. The protesters sit in anyway, and they face beatings and humiliation for sitting at the lunch counters. Lewis notes that some of the white protesters are actually targeted more severely than black protesters. And he also says, quote, violence begets violence, but the opposite is just as true. Fury spends itself pretty quickly when there's no violence facing it. And the protesters remain. Uh, the protesters choose to remain nonviolent, and the mob eventually disperses. And then the police come in and warn the protesters that they will be arrested. Uh, um, and when the protesters still do not disperse, they are in fact arrested. And Lewis notes that it was the first of many times that he was arrested as part of the civil rights movement. Waves of protesters uh, take the seats of anyone who is arrested. So anyone who gets arrested, someone else immediately fills in that seat. Uh, to get the and the jail, the jails get overfilled with the protesters. <laughs> I love this. They're just arresting so many of them, and to get them out of jail, um, they decide to lower the bail from one hundred dollars to five dollars. They just tell everyone just pay five dollars and you get out of jail. Uh, but nobody pays, <laughs> and the jails <laughs> get even more full. And eventually, they're just let out because <laughs> they can't handle them. Fine, just get out of here. <laughs> yep, I love it. <laughs> um, these these protests were organized by students. And the students are told by some of the older leaders in the black community that they have made their point, but they need to stop. The city proposes a system of partial integration, which is supported by some of those same uh, older black leaders. John Lewis says he was convinced after Thurgood Thurgood Marshall spoke in a more conciliatory manner than he liked uh, that, quote, our revolt was as much against the traditional black leadership structure as it was against segregation and discrimination. End quote. And the students organized into the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. And this is an interesting aspect. Like the the tension, there's a tension that exists uh, that gets shown in the story that we don't always hear about in the civil rights movement about like what is the best method uh, to try and advance black rights. Uh, are, are we going to try and get all rights at once? Or are we going to go go in steps? And this really does display some of those uh, those tensions in a way that I think often gets omitted from civil rights stories. Um. Let's see. Later on, a black family's house is bombed, and there is a massive march on City Hall in response. The mayor, somewhat waveringly, uh, says that he endorses the end of all segregation in the city, even at the lunch counters. And the next day, blacks are allowed to eat at the lunch counters for the first time. And Dr. King gives a speech saying uh, he came to Nashville to receive inspiration in what has happened uh, here in that city. And in the last three panels... um, of the of the book though show black customers being refused service at a burger restaurant and that is the end of book one well done thank you so i guess uh, one one discussion topic that i want to make sure we hit is the way our perceptions of history can kind of shift and change and ebb <laughs> you yeah. know with where we're at um and to demonstrate this 
I wanted to discuss how uh, the, some of the major events in book one are around 1965. That's the year where some of these things are happening, like mm-hmm. the march at the very beginning. Um, which, to me, when I was a kid growing up, that felt like ancient history. Like, oh, that is so long ago. <laughs> the yeah. 1960s. Did you have the same experience, Todd? It it feels like a long time ago, yeah. Yeah. Um, but then I was thinking about this for context. So when I turned eight, it was probably like when I was first maybe becoming aware of these kinds of issues in American history at all, certainly in a very uh, simple manner. And that was in 1990. Uh, and I, I'm sure I thought that was just like, oh, forever ago, 1965. Yeah. Uh, and it, to try and contextualize how recent some of these events are. I mean, obviously John Lewis is, is a current congressman. It's not like this is ancient history. The people who were doing these protests, many of them are still alive uh, today. Uh, but I was thinking about my daughter who is eight and what would feel like ancient history to her. Uh-huh. <laughs> the, the way that the civil rights movement feels like, oh, like ancient history to me. I know where you're going with this when now. I, <laughs> uh, when, I, when I was turning eight, 1990. So 25 years ago for my daughter... Uh, at the time of this recording, and maybe someone's coming to listen to this years later, but at the time of this recording, that would be 1992. Uh, so some popular movies from 1992. Aladdin, A Few Good Men, Last of the Mohicans. <laughs> so that's like the distance we're, we're really dealing with from when I was a kid. Uh, popular music, Smells Like Teen Spirit by Nirvana, and I, will, I the song I Will Always Love You by Whitney Houston. Oh, I love that song. Uh, some, some TV premieres, Todd, uh, Batman, the animated series, and the uh. X-Men cartoon. Both premiered in 1992. Oh, peak childhood cartoons for me. That is true. <laughs> it may That's never got better for children. We were like 10, 11 years old. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, eight years old. Or, uh, or, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We that would have been uh, when we were... Uh, 1992, yeah. Or 10, yeah. Um, but the most watched shows on television were things like Cheers, Home Improvement, Roseanne, Murder, She Wrote, Northern Exposure. And uh, Bill Clinton was elected president that year. Wow. And none of that feels like ancient history to me, the way the civil no. rights movement still feels like, oh, that was very, very long ago. Yeah. Uh, but but to my eight-year-old daughter this year, that's the same distance as when, when I was eight years old uh, from the events of the civil rights movement, or, you know, the, the major events of the civil rights movement. Uh, which, again, it's it's just shocking to me sometimes to think about how, how close uh, some of these major shifts in American culture uh, and in societal uh, treatment of others, you know, how recent it really is. Yeah. That's interesting. I'm glad that you did that. That puts things in perspective. Yes. It's just, (laughs) it's not as far back as we might like to think. No. And history just has, it feels like time has been so compressed in the last, the last half of the last, last half of the 20th century. Um, I feel like like time just compressed and everything's happening so much faster than it used to. Mm-hmm. It certainly seems like that. Yeah. Um, so this, in preparing for this discussion, it kind of made me think about uh, Remember the Titans, an earlier episode uh, yeah. that we did, uh, which was based on a true story, dealing with prejudice and civil rights issues in a lot of ways. Uh, but we talked quite a bit about how... Um, the the based was uh, a a lot more significant than the true part of yeah. Remember the Titans. <laughs> um, they, they took it off a lot of liberties, uh, but this is an effort I think at a more accurate uh, telling. But there's still the fact that this is you know a, re- a retelling of someone's life where we're only going to get snippets, uh, you know, very small glimpses into into some uh, of John Lewis's history. So, why do you think we get the stories that we get? 
Um, now, obviously, we don't know what's been omitted, but what are we supposed to be learning about John Lewis when we get stories? Like, for example, let's focus in on, on uh, the, the baptism of, of the baby chicks. Uh, when he drowns a baby chick, when he's trying to baptize it, and he practices sermons in the chicken coop. Why do you think that's the kind of story that gets included in this story of the civil rights of John Lewis and the civil rights movement? I think this is I think this is a really good question. <laughs> I don't know that I'm gonna have a great answer for uh, each of these events in the story, but I I I think it's really important to never forget that history telling is storytelling, and that storytelling is all about making choices about what you're going to include and what you're not going to include. And so um, we can say, oh, this is the true story of what happened. And the, and the, the response to that is, yes. <laughs> um, like they did happen. <laughs> these things did happen. Uh, there were also a lot of other things that also happened that, that aren't discussed here. And, and I think that's important. It, I think it's – I think the whole premise of this graphic novel is really interesting that – uh, you would make a comic book about your life, which is based on a, a comic. I mean, the, the idea comes from uh, my understanding, the, a comic that was written about Martin Luther King Jr. in the '60s. Yes, right? and I, I think John Lewis found that comic at some point, and it helped inspire him to be more involved in the civil rights movement. Yeah, and so there's this. I think there's this really interesting thing that's going on between. Um, humility and a desire to to tell to tell the story and um i don't know how to i don't know i don't i don't know why this feels so much different than like a a, a straight up autobiography would would feel uh, or biography or memoirs or something but to do it in comic book form which is uh, a genre that is so heavily associated with superheroes, mm-hmm. I think is an interesting choice. Yeah, uh, but at the same time that it's associated with superheroes and therefore like inherently uh, you know, heroism you know, is, is what we do, it's also a genre that is often disregarded for serious fare, right? It's, yes! Uh, it's, so doubly interesting. I mean, du- interesting yeah. on, on both sides. Yes, uh, that it, it's a genre that struggles to be taken seriously. Uh, yeah. And so I think it's just an interesting choice. That's my kind of my opening statement here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you want to write the story of the civil rights movement, uh, why, why choose this, this, uh, this vehicle? Um, I think it's really interesting. Why the chickens? Um, I think it does – we discussed this a little bit when we discussed To Kill a Mockingbird. The The reason why you choose specific events in this are because they're formative. They, they're they're key to telling how you became the person that you became. And so – and I think the chickens are important because it shows, it shows a concern for human life. Uh, I mean – let me – say that one more time it it shows a concern for life chickens are not human (laughs) uh but they are but they are alive and we see very on in uh in john lewis's life that he's concerned about life um and he's he's a deep kid who's thinking about life and death uh in really concrete ways when he's when he's very young um and then I, i i think that that's one reason why uh, it's interesting to see how chickens 
uh, meld with the Bible, which turns into him being a preacher and his first, um, his first audience, his first congregation are the chickens. And there's, I wonder I, if the chickens I, I, work well, somehow as a metaphor. That. Just real quick, I wanted to say there's an interesting uh, like storytelling device that's used uh, where we see him reading the Bible, and I think this is just showing like he's a, he's a sober, serious child. Yes. <laughs> you know, he's he's not into frivolousness the way uh, we associate often with children. Right. Um, but it shows him uh, a silhouette of him holding the Bible, and we see you know like kind of the comic bookie Bible with uh, it's a book with open pages and just lines where the text is, but we see written on the silhouette in kind of scratchy writing uh, the text of a verse of a verse of Bible, um, and it's it's doing something in. The storytelling in the comic book form that you couldn't get in a traditional memoir or uh, or autobiography. Yeah, uh, there's. I feel like there's something um, metaphorical in the chickens, in the way that I wonder. I wonder if he's drawing a parallel between the the chickens early on, and the and the way that black people are treated later on, um, in that. He, he feels so much uh, love and empathy for them. He wants to preach to them. And and yet the people in his family see them as something that's to be raised and then eaten. And and this this idea that this kid sees this group of people... I keep trying to turn the chickens into people. He sees this group of chickens as something more than that. And in a way that he sees he sees his people as something more than what the white people see them as, and and so I think it sets up, it kind of sets the stage for things that we're going to see later on. Right. There's something messianic in the in the early part, and again, this is why I I kind of wonder at the choice of of the graphic novel as the vehicle for this. Is that I I think that there is a danger, and I don't I don't think that this happens. It's not the way that I read it, but I can see other people reading it as kind of self-aggrandizing, um, and and making himself to be sort of larger than life by a superhero, right? Yeah, he's a superhero, and and the the scene that you were pointing out earlier uh, with the chickens, and he's reading to the chickens. There's a uh, there's a page where we see him and written on his silhouette. Is this what you were talking about yeah. earlier? Mm-hmm. Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Um, and it's written on right on top of him, which, which in, uh, I, <laughs> I think it's really, I think it's really interesting. I think that it can be uh, a little bit complicated. Um, yeah. I mean, in, the text right before it, is by the time I was five, I could read it myself referring to the Bible. And one phrase struck me strongly, though I couldn't comprehend its full meaning at the time. And that's when we see that phrase uh, on the silhouette. And I, I think uh, certainly it, it's you know, the issue that you're saying, like this this could come across as self-aggrandizing to have that scripture written on your five-year-old silhouette. <laughs> right. Um, and so is he saying, is he saying this was, this has like been written into my soul, mm-hmm. uh, this testimony of Jesus? Um I think that that's what I think that that's what they're trying to to do with with the writing the 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 scripture kind of scratched yeah, on, on top of his five year old soul it becomes part of him but again it's just it's kind of a complicated it's it's a complicated thing that's going on here and the and the danger is that he that 
that people will see him setting himself up as this messianic figure who then saved all of uh, everyone. Which right. I think there's a couple of interesting things that help to alleviate that. One is definitely uh, Nate Powell's art style. Mm-hmm. Um, John Lewis is not drawn as a larger-than-life figure. Right. Uh, within this, uh, it's... I mean, the cartooning of it uh, is... It, you know, it's not accurate to life, uh, the way the, these figures are. It's consistent throughout, uh, you know, uh, Powell's style uh, is... Um, but it, I think it does create some... Uh, distance from the reality. Yeah, knowing that this is, you know, a sitting congressperson is whose life's being told in this. Right. Uh, but we still have this cartooning style that I think creates some distance there. The aggrandizing that happens, if there is any, is is Martin Luther King. He's the larger-than-life figure. Yes. And I'm trying to find where he gets... And you know the... what? I'm totally okay with that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, even, and even John Lewis. Uh, the story is amazing. The story is amazing. And to think of what he went through... And the people around him uh, that he was working with, the things that they went through, it's it's astonishing, mm-hmm. and and it deserves to be told, and it deserves to be told in a way that that shows he and the people, him and the people that he was with as heroes because they are. I mean, they did something heroic, and uh, and I think that that's worth pointing out. <laughs> and I think it's worth having these stories told in mul- multiple forms. Like we yeah. have so many ways that stories get told to us today you know be it through podcasts be it through graphic novels television film uh traditional novels uh and i think this is a a story of american history that needs to be told in all of those (laughs) and the graphic novel is as we discuss on this podcast many times it is a powerful form of storytelling that can express certain things in ways that you can't express in any other in any other medium and so it's it's I mean it's awesome it's a, it's a, it's a, it is a great character in a great story, um, so I don't want people to think that I'm like down on this novel because I think it's amazing. Um, I just think it's really there are some interesting things going on. Right. I mean, talking about the way the storytelling works uh, in this that's different than what you get in others. Uh, when they're doing their drive uh, with his uncle um, from Alabama to the north, and it talks about. Um, the ner- how nervous they were like it does a close up panel of the uncle uh his eyes um kind of scrunched tight and there's sweat beads above his eyes and then mm-hmm. it shows the next panel is just saying you are now entering Ohio and then it does a wide shot of them together and you can just see his uncle has relaxed them i mean you still see the sweat beads on his face but just the way the eyes yeah. are drawn it's different than what you had in the close up panel just before um the story of the drive to the north it was sometime like a week after i read this I'd seen on Facebook someone had put a link to, and now I can't remember the name of it. And you know what? It's worth us pausing for a moment for me to go find the name of it. It's, it's <laughs> okay. Yeah, it's it's a guidebook. It was a guidebook that was published for African Americans doing road trips in America. Oh wow! And, and it was talking about what gas stations they could stop at and not, uh, and things like that. So, uh, like a week after I had read March Book One, which had this um, one significant like part of the narrative is young John Lewis taking a drive. Uh, from Alabama to to the north uh, with his uncle and talks about you know the stress of actually being African and driving uh, in the south then I saw a link that just someone had posted in Facebook um, that was about this book that was called the name of it was the Negro Motorist Green Book and this was published uh, from 1936 to 1966 um, and it was a guidebook 
for African-Americans driving, letting them know what gas stations were okay for African-Americans to stop at, uh, what cities they should avoid, what routes were the safest uh, for African-Americans. And like, that's just one part of, of life that we so often, like it would never cross my mind, <laughs> right? right. Uh, from my experience in the era in which I live and uh, where I was born, uh, my race, you know, so many things would make that like such a foreign concept that wouldn't even cross my mind that driving would be dangerous. Uh, and obviously we have in the news today, like there's still this tension that, that exists uh, in uh, that we see, we see in news stories that we haven't fully resolved these issues, but the fact that there was an entire guidebook uh, that was made yeah. Uh, in this era, saying where you can and can't stop for gas because of the color of your skin. Um, it's one of those things that's simultaneously shocking and not shocking uh, when you think about yeah. it. <laughs> um, that that helps, uh, like, it's a concrete detail that helps to solidify just what kind of prejudice uh, was was institutionalized and, and, and was common uh, at the time. And um, the fact that a road trip with, with his uncle was you know, caused fear, <laughs> um, yeah. that, that was, uh, the status on which he was growing up. And I mean, they, they cover these other horrifying events like Emmett Till, uh, but something about the fact that the drive through the Southern States made them so nervous, just struck me in a way, uh, maybe it's because it's something I hadn't really considered, uh, and certainly had never seen portrayed, uh, the way that it is in this graphic novel. Um, I've, I, you know, I'm familiar with the story of Emmett Till and that tragedy, uh, so that, um, you know, it, it is a tragedy, but it wasn't surprising the way the fact that just driving through Alabama would be so stressful for his uncle. Yeah. It's, um, <laughs> when you, the, that feeling of relaxing, um, when you, when you, when they cross into the North reminds me in, in a way that's, <laughs> I don't even know, not comparable in in scale, certainly, but only in the kind of feeling that it is. It's the feeling that I have when I finally make it back into the United States after I've been driving in Mexico for a while, and I'm just like, oh man, I'm so glad to be, <laughs> I'm so glad to be back, because uh, you just feel yeah, feel safer, feel that sense of relief. I uh, one thing that I thought was super interesting in this novel is the debate inside the black community about mm-hmm. the. Sp- the 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 speed or the aggressiveness with which they would push for reform and that there were people like Thurgood Marshall who who advocated for a more gradual approach and that um John Lewis's approach was more like let's just rip the band-aid off mm-hmm. um and it's something that I haven't I'm sure that I knew but haven't hadn't thought about, um, and it seems like a really important thing to think about. Yeah, and I, I, this is something that just uh, teaching American literature it comes up. Uh, anything anything post uh, Civil War era, uh, and often it's um, being flavored, or, or I guess their opinions seem to be inflected by: Are they writing from? Is it an African American writer in the South or an African American writer in the in the North? Uh, the, the writers from the North tend to be more aggressive in the calls for change. And the ones in the South are kind of like, let's gradually <laughs> right. uh, move uh, for, for full, uh, you know, equality, but let's start by uh, addressing the gravest injustices that are before us right now. Mm-hmm. And the ones from the North where obviously there's a different culture uh, that would be happening right there. Uh, we're often like, no, let's just go for full equality everywhere in the country right now. <laughs> Yeah, I I think it um 
again, it reminds me of our discussion of To Kill a Mockingbird and Atticus Finch, and uh, that m- maybe probably the 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 early draft of that novel, the first draft of that novel, in which Atticus is maybe more racist than we're comfortable with. <laughs> Uh, but the reason why he says is because things are happening too fast, and that it's bad for it's bad for the society to 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 make that change so dramatically. And it's just a it's a point of view that I think we don't think about very often. Is you see that a change needs to be made, and so your first reaction is, well, let's just make the change, but. But maybe I don't know. Sometimes it's just it becomes really complicated because you're dealing with a, a lot of different people in a, in a lot of different circumstances. And sometimes, like you said, people in the north see this and they say, "Let's just do it." And people in the south who want the same change to happen are like, "You know what? That might not actually be the very best thing for us right now." <laughs> um, and just to see that debate play out and, and we know – I mean in the end, we we want to say, well, it worked, right? Like they did it John Lewis's way and Martin Luther King Jr.'s way and it worked. And But we're still struggling with race issues in this country. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. We have not moved past this. And um, so it, it, say, we're still working on the same thing. Yeah, and it goes back earlier, like uh, late 1800s. It's Booker T. Washington and W.B. Du Bois. Um, they're offering two very different – uh, views and they're both trying to claim kind of leadership of the movement of uh, advancing, uh, you know, the rights for African Americans and um, and it's this, these same two issues like how quickly are we going to move, how conciliatory are we going to be? I yeah. think I think they would probably both be upset at how long progress took. <laughs> <laughs> well, and is taking yeah, yeah. and, 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 and is taking take. like yeah, if they, if they looked at it in the 1960s, they said, how did it take? This yeah. long to get to this like, point. Yeah, even... Uh, they, I'm sure they would have expected it to be, you know, many years sooner. Yeah, even, even Booker T. Washington it was I, I, it was the more conciliatory. Yeah, was was the, the, you know, the the slower pace. And I think he would have been appalled Shocked. at how slow the pace <laughs> yeah. ended up being. Yeah. Um, going back to John Lewis, uh, the and, and the way they're organizing this movement, one sequence that I had never... Again, I just never considered it. Uh, was when they're talking about the nonviolent protests that they had to practice and train. To yes, be I love that. Um, and that some of them couldn't do it. <laughs> like they, they they were weeding out anyone with a temper because they said if this nonviolence is going to work, we have to be completely nonviolent. And yeah. to practice, they would on each other use every racial slur. They would spit on each other. They would hit each other physically. Like they would do Throw physical things at each other. each other. Yeah. Um, and practice sitting there and taking it and. <sighs> I, like like you, when you hear about nonviolence you you appreciate what happens in the moment but i had never considered like the the training to reach that moment when i think that we think about nonviolence as like this kumbaya thing where everybody just goes and they sit and they hold hands and they and they just you know they just do this thing but one thing that this that this graphic novel really captures is how intense that experience is to do that and to have people heckling you and throwing things at you and spitting at you and, and, and kicking you and punching you and pushing you and doing that thing to your friends uh, it has to be just an incredibly intense thing and requires an enormous amount of self-discipline. And uh, I think we don't think about that very often, but it's important to remember. 
Yeah, uh, like you said, kind of kumbaya, or even like a simpler way, <laughs> or, or an easy way of protest is to, is to do nonviolent protest. Uh, I think right. this does a good job of saying no. <laughs> like it is an extremely difficult form of protest, and you have to train yourself to be able to participate in that kind of protest. Yeah, in, in many ways, like giving into anger and frustration is is the much easier way out. Than- yeah, it's way easier to write some sign and then just go pick it and yell and scream, and then the police come and you put a bandana around your face. And I mean, that's intense in a different way, but just the the amount of self control to go and sit there and remain calm and say nothing and just you know keep your head down while all of this stuff, both literally and figuratively is raining down on you (laughs) and and to just take that is it's it's astounding just to think about it and uh, i mean i I admire these people so much for for what they did um i wanted to talk about uh one of the other vignettes that we get of his life and i think this is an interesting one because it's simultaneously showing uh the way virtues can be vices (laughs) (laughs) Uh, you know that this depending on the context and who's looking at it um one thing could be you know great for one point of view but really problematic for the other and that's when he uh hides from harvest time in order to go to school yes so one thing that we're learning about john lewis in this sequence is he values you know his intellect um Mm. that uh thinking and learning uh are very important to him but at the same time he's ditching out his family at a time uh when they are when they need his help to provide for life, right? It's, right. it's not just, oh, it'd be nice if it was here. Like, this is our uh, entire means of existence. And John Lewis is is running out on them, quite literally running out on them, uh, chasing down a bus. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of a funny scene. Uh, <laughs> but I, 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 to me, it's just, uh, it's one of the most interesting vignettes within the story. It reminds me of um, discussion about artists and how they're necessary but they don't really do a lot (laughs) i mean on some (laughs) on some level they don't do a lot right like they're kind of parasites on society they they just you know they sit in their studios and they wear black turtlenecks and they create these these pieces of art and the rest of us are over here i mean i say the rest of us i'm one of them right (laughs) i have a privileged job in which i get to go and read books and watch movies and then talk to people about them, and I get paid, and I don't know how that works, but, <laughs> but, um, but, but I, uh, you know, at some point you have to recognize that we have this the privilege of doing this thing because of the work of lots of lots and lots of other people uh, who never have that opportunity, and and that's I mean that's the life of John Lewis, right? I mean mm-hmm. he was able to do that because his parents worked their tails off for him and his siblings and everybody else in his family. And we say, oh, how great that he that he was able to do that thing, but um, but you have to realize the the cost, and the, the foundation that he was standing on. Yeah, I I mean he's we're seeing him as a child like choosing this intellectualism over work, and that intellectualism is something that's going to lead him into the choices he makes to participate in the civil rights movement, to become a leader in the civil rights movement, to be a speaker. Like he spoke at, right. The same rally where Martin Luther King Jr. gave his... Which eventually allows him to make life better for all of those people. Right. For everyone that was doing the work that he was running out on. Um, but in order for in him the to moment. have that chance, he needed those people <laughs> doing that work. Right. In the moment, it's uh, yeah, it's tricky. 
it, it's just such a fascinating balance for <laughs> society, so. like for our culture, like for his culture, for his for his society, for his life. It's just a very interesting balance to try and uh, think about. Um, you know what everyone else around him, like like if his whole family had said, "Oh, we're all going to go to school," their family like literally cannot continue surviving on the farm that they have. It's a uh, and his making that choice is going to improve civil rights for everyone. I have a daughter. She is seven and she's obsessed with fairness. Everything has to be fair. <laughs> and I don't know where it comes that's from. Gonna be, that's going to be rough in the long run. <laughs> it is hard. I'm telling you, it is really hard to deal with a seven year old who feels like life is unjust. Um, but, but life is not just, <laughs> it's just, it isn't fair. And, and, you know, somehow it, it works out and, but, but it's not fair. It's not fair. It just isn't. Um, I guess talking about that, not fair. It makes me, I want, I want to talk about like the narrative arc that we have in this story. I mean, we're jumping timelines. We know John Lewis ends up as a congressman. Um, right. So there's some Things measure of success that's going to be had for this movement. Um, but it's really interesting to me that we see well not these... only is he a congressman but he's also the framing of this is that it's the uh, it's the inauguration it's obama's inauguration yeah president obama's inauguration um so obviously the status of african americans changes wildly between uh the senior john lewis's life and and what he's recounting of his youth and his college age years but the the story the the past story that we get for this book one and obviously there's two more books we know this is a trilogy of books. Um, but we get the story, um, of these sit-ins and this effort in, um, what was the city? Nashville. The Nashville. In Nashville, uh, to change this one particular part of culture and society and, the, and law, right? The segregation by law, uh, that allows whites only lunch counters. And the story ends triumphantly, right? With, with their sit-ins working. The, go- sort of. the, the Well, yeah, exactly. That's what I'm going to get to. Like the mayor says, okay, we're going to change this. African-Americans sit at, these counters for the first time and enjoy food. And uh, Martin Luther King Jr. comes and gives a speech about how he is inspired by the change that has happened here. But then even as, and again, this is one of those graphic novel things that I love. We are getting uh, Martin Luther King's speech and these uh, word balloons are being put over uh, at first scenes of success. says Martin Luther King, this is the last two pages arrived to speak. And we see, uh, Newspapers uh, with the headline uh, about um, the integrating uh, the lunch counters. And then Martin Luther King Jr. is speaking. We see him at a podium. And we see the word balloons. And these word balloons are going to float over other panels. Now he says, I came to Nashville not to bring inspiration, but to gain inspiration from the great movement that has taken place in this community. Uh, and then we see people eating, uh, you know, uh, integrated eating at the lunch counters. And, and the word balloon says, no lie can live forever. Let us not despair. And then here we're seeing some African-Americans walking into uh, a hamburger uh, restaurant and we see Martin Luther King Jr. saying the universe is with us walk together children don't get weary and over those word balloons are over the scene of the white workers at um, this restaurant turning away the African Americans that have just walked in and that's the end mm. of, of book one uh, so you know within the story that we have we have the success um, you know the, the 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 overcoming of the struggles but then we get this coda that is very pessimistic, actually. <laughs> um, 
I mean, like with the classic story structure, we're looking at this as the trilogy, like the, the first chapters of trilogies often end on triumph. And it's usually the second chapters of trilogies that end in right. uh, more despair. And the third challenge, uh, the third trilogy uh, or chapter of a trilogy is, is the greater triumph. Uh, the greater, the, you know, the, the final success. And, and we've said, like, we know this is actual history. We know this isn't going to conform perfectly to narrative structure. But what do you think of that choice to end with Martin Luther King Jr.'s speech about coming to gain inspiration, even as we're seeing a different reality than what he's talking about? I don't see it as completely pessimistic. Um, as much as I see it as maybe realistic. Yes, I like that. I, I was thinking the same thing. In that, uh, I think that it is it is inspiring, and to say that it's to I, I think to say that it's not would be just not true. <laughs> it is inspiring, and and Martin Luther King Jr. is an inspiring figure, um, and we it, it, I don't think there's any problem with listening to the I Have a Dream speech or any of his other speeches or the, this one. The universe is with us. Walk with me, children. Um, that's inspiring stuff, and it was powerful in its day for instigating change the message at the end of this is that it didn't all happen overnight yeah and it wasn't a, just a rousing success even even when it was successful <laughs> right like it, it worked uh, and nonviolence worked and they and they desegregated the lunch counters in Nashville and that's that's a victory but no victory in this movement is a complete victory. Just like no victory in the women's rights movement is a complete victory. And no movement in the religious rights movement is a victor is a complete victory. <laughs> or, we, or gay rights. Or, 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 yeah, gay whatever, rights. Yeah. Or, gay rights or religious rights or – I mean there's – there in any, in any of these kind of big sweeping movements – no one victory, as important as it is, signals complete victory. And so you take inspiration from the victories that you get, and you recognize that there's still more work to do. And that's the, the sense that I get at the end of this book is that there's still more work to do. Mm -hmm. And they did something great, and it was inspiring, and it was important. It was, a, it was a hugely important step in this process, but the process wasn't done then, and it's still not done today. Yeah, I, I like that analysis. And I think it's... Again, it's just one of those things I love when you see storytelling done in a graphic novel that couldn't be done uh, yeah. that way, <laughs> you know, that, that, that perfectly. Uh, like, you, I, you could do something similar in film with you the voiceover. with the voiceover, yeah. Uh, over it, but uh, the, the, the text being present on the same panel and unavoidably present of don't get weary, even as you're seeing these stone-faced white workers yeah, their arms the folded and the... of these African Americans into the restaurant with that word balloon. Don't get weary. Like there's something different on seeing that image and that text together versus hearing the voiceover uh, and a visual image in film or on television that is just unique to comics. Well, that speech is a victory speech. I mean, it is saying this was amazing, but it's also a pep talk. Right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> At the same time, it's like we just won a battle, but we have not won the war, and and that's what the visual of those last two pages says to me is that we did win a battle and it was awesome, but we have not won the war and, and we, I don't know, we may never. <laughs> yes. Right. Like we're going to, says it's, it's a long slog. <laughs> we're going to continue fighting this uh, forever. I mean, fighting for human dignity and, and for treating everyone with compassion and love and empathy and 
we have so much work to do as humanity. On and this, even as we're saying, fronts. like the the context that I was giving at the beginning of this podcast, that it feels like the civil rights movement was so long ago, and that we've made <laughs> we, we've made so many strides that can have a child think, oh, that's just that's really long ago part of American history, but it's not. And it's Aladdin, yeah, man, I remember when Aladdin came out. <laughs> we've, we've seen a lot of progress, uh, but obviously there's still a lot of progress to be had, and I'm I'm yeah. grateful that we've moved forward from where we used to be culturally in America and in the world. Uh, but, but we're certainly not where our anyone's end goal should be as far as how we, we treat each other. Um, and how, uh, you know, the rhetoric that gets employed to describe others. Um, I think, I think we've all seen in our own lives, plenty of examples that say we need a little bit more love and understanding uh, and compassion. I think one thing that's interesting to me is that, um, the, 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 this book brings up, we've talked about this already, but just the means, right? Like that the means matter. The ends are important, but the means matter. The way the way about which you you go about trying to achieve this long term goal, uh, the means matter, and and it's and and the means are up for debate. There's it's not it there 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 isn't one clear way that we would say that's that's the one way that this is going to happen. Uh, but it's something that we need to be constantly talking about and discussing and. And asking ourselves, are we doing this the right way? Are we going too fast? Are we going too slow? Mm-hmm. Are we alienating people that we are eventually going to need? <laughs> right? Because I could be like a man on a mission, but if I can't get anybody to come along with me, then I'm I'm a man on an island, and no change is going to be affected. <laughs> and when so, I like what um, the last the two pages that we kind of dissected in a bit more depth does so well is show that. Um, that that debate that was going on within the civil rights community uh, or movement uh, about like what speed with what you know are we going to try and enact change? It kind of shows that both may happen simultaneously. Right. Uh, you may see a fast change, but it's really only going to be a step. Yeah. So it's a. Uh, I, I really like this, um, and I I feel like more people should read it. I was going to just point out the painfully obvious <laughs> about the art style, um, but black and white. Uh, <laughs> It, it, I, I don't know how many discussions they had about, you know, to do this in color or in black and white, but it's so obviously the right decision <laughs> to do it in black and white. Um, and there's just so much interesting play with uh, shadow and um, and light and and black and white that I, well, uh, and, and fits I mentioned so perfectly earlier, the story. Um, like the there are times when he chooses to do a fully black background uh, on mm-hmm. the page. Um, and there are times where it's, it's a white background and I, knowing Nate Powell's work and other things that, that he's done, that is a thoughtful decision. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I think even if you look at this and you maybe say that our style's not for me, I don't think there's any way you can, you could read this and say, this that was the not, wrong choice. Yeah. Or that this wasn't, uh, you know, an artist working to combine his skill set of with the with the tone and the themes of the story, right? Yeah. That uh, this is deliberate, skillful work. Even if maybe you might say this style is not for me, I enjoy the style and I think it's a great match for this story. Um, even if it maybe seems uh, a bit like like there's a cartoony element to this when we are telling the real life story of a very serious, you know, American event. <laughs> yeah, uh, and maybe some people may say that there's a disconnect between. Uh, the graphic novel form and the particular art style that's in here. But I think it does some very interesting things for a reader. 
Yeah. Um, Nate Powell is is this kind of in the vein of the other stuff that he's done? Is it a is it a huge departure from his style in other in his other work? Uh, I I think this artistic style is pretty close uh, to what I've seen in his other stuff. So uh, Nate Powell, um, the other work that I'm most familiar with of his called Swallow Me Whole. Here's the description that came up when I uh, for the plot of that. Swallow Me Whole is a love story carried by rolling fog, terminal illness, hallucination, apophenia, insect armies, secrets held, unshakable faith, and the search for a master pattern to make a sense of one's unraveling. Wow. Um, he... And I know he's dealt with mental illness and some of his other things. He's dealt with violence uh, and um, and the way uh, children uh, kind of uh, play violence versus real violence. I know that's something he's engaged with in some of his other works. So I, he's an artist who is not unfamiliar to heady topics and serious topics in the comic book yeah. form. Uh, and I think that's probably one thing that made him a good match and maybe why they sought him out uh, for this. I mean, his... So March won a National Book Award, which is rarely given <laughs> to comic books ever. Uh, but Swallow Me Whole was an earlier work of his that did win an Eisner Award, which if you've listened to our podcast, you know that's kind of the equivalent of an Oscar for, for graphic novels and comic books. So he's known in the industry, um, even though he hasn't really done like the traditional, what, what we associate with comic books in his, in his career. Uh, he's known as a skillful artist and storyteller. Um, usually in his other works, I'm pretty sure he's, he's generally the writer and artist on his work. Um, but this is I, because of the subject matter and, and the story that he's telling, he obviously had, uh, you know, writers with whom he was working. Okay. Any final thoughts on this? Uh, I think this, uh, the, the fact that we so often associate, uh, comics with children's work, uh, you know, with children's media, I think it's good that the story is being told in that form and that maybe more children will engage with it because of that. I know it's being placed in lots of uh, like junior high libraries and things like that yeah. around the country. Um, my daughter, who's eight, picked it up and started reading it, and I'm just fine with that. <laughs> I think I think <laughs> it's a story that should be engaged with uh, by children, uh, and, and it's part of our history that's hard to deal with and hard to discuss. Uh, but like you said, Todd, this you know the, these are stories of heroes <laughs> of, of American culture uh, that that saw a need for change and were willing to put themselves in very dangerous situations to try and enact that change. Um, we often have stories and I think they're good stories and I think they're valuable stories of, you know, war heroes, people who engage in violence uh, to protect, who engage in violence uh, to, to change the world for better. And that's needed at times. And I think we also need these stories of people who engage in nonviolence uh, means of protest uh, that can enact change similarly. Yeah, I agree. Um, it seems like like that word hero has been, I don't know, <laughs> like sometimes we shy away from it because it, it seems to imply that somebody's, if, if we say someone is a hero, that we're saying that they're perfect. Oh, and, yeah. and I, I was going to say, and also sometimes I think, I think it gets reserved for heroic acts, right? Like, like actions and, uh, you know, feats of valor. Uh-huh. And I think this is showing a different kind of heroism. Uh, possibly. I mean, it's still action, right? I mean, yeah, they are feats but, of valor. Yes, but it's not like, uh, you know, uh, pummeling your enemy into submission. Yeah, it's um, not violence, but it's but it requires, I mean, as we said earlier, it requires uh, self-control and, um, and uh, discipline and courage, like just straight-up courage to do the right thing. Um, 
that I think is heroic. And uh, I think there's – I have no problem with saying uh, these guys are heroes and they deserve uh, they deserve to be honored for, yeah, the, for the things that they've done. And um, and if the graphic novel is the best way to tell that story, then then uh, by all means. <laughs> and I like what you're saying that they're heroes; they're not perfect. Uh, you yeah. know, saying someone's a hero doesn't require perfection in their life and their morals and these other things. Uh, but in in this aspect of their lives, they were definitely acting heroically. And I think um, the very first scene it kind of got run over quickly in um, in my summary. But the the first scene is that march on the bridge, and they see the police on the other side of the bridge, and the the dialogue exactly is. Uh, let's see. The, I'm looking for the... Oh. Can you swim? No. Well, neither can I, but we might have to. <laughs> 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 they're, they're walking across the bridge, uh, but like you said, it takes a lot of courage uh, in the context in which they are walking across the bridge. Yeah. Great stuff. I'm glad we got to read this. Okay, well, that wraps up this episode. Thanks for joining us. Please subscribe to the Protagonist Podcast in iTunes, and please leave us a review there. It really helps us out. If you're a new listener, just a note about our back catalog. We switched up our format a bit at episode 13, so our first dozen episodes are a bit meandering in terms of discussion and length. If you enjoyed this discussion of March, uh, you may also enjoy our episode number 92, in which we discussed Remember the Titans, and episode 33, in which we discussed another graphic novel called Asterios Polyp. Uh, links to things we've talked about in this episode are at protagonistpodcast.com. That's also where you can find a list of all of our shows. You can suggest stories or characters for us to discuss or give us any comments or corrections by emailing feedback at protagonistpodcast.com. We're also on Twitter at protagonistpod, at Todd K. Mack, and at Jay Dorowski. Our producer, Andrew, is at Andrew underscore Dorowski, and our Facebook fan page is facebook.com slash protagonistpodcast. We have really great discussions there with our listeners and would love for you to say hello anytime. If you would like to support us uh, financially, there are a few different ways you can do that. You can buy a topic for us to discuss or show your appreciation with a monetary donation by clicking... Uh, the support link on our homepage or go to protagonist uh, to sorry you can buy a topic for us to discuss or show your appreciation with a monetary donation by clicking on the support link on our homepage or going to patreon.com slash protagonist all supporters on patreon receive uh, access to our special quickcasts which are shorter episodes in which we break down newly released films and trailers you can also go to protagonistpodcast.com slash Amazon to make all of your Amazon purchases. Just a reminder, it looks exactly like regular Amazon and costs you nothing more, but we get a small kickback from your purchase. And finally, don't forget to sign up for a 30-day free trial of audible.com by going to audibletrial.com slash protagonist. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back again next week to discuss another great character in a great story. So long. So long. Um, the, oh, what was I saying? Dang it. <laughs>